This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, October 11th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. At the Cato Institute's New Challenges to the Free Economy Conference held last week, former Obama Council of Economic Advisors head Jason Furman addressed what he sees as the blind spots of the right and left and even libertarians when it comes to crafting better economic policy. Truly appreciative of that um, kind and generous introduction. I'm also appreciative that somebody's invited me to talk about a topic other than inflation. I used to have a wide range of topics I'd thought and worked about and have gotten overly obsessed with that one um, narrow one. Uh, Perhaps taking off of Jeff's introduction and that way of thinking, um, I wanted to start by talking about one of the big problems in public policy is that we don't just have one objective. We often have many objectives. And the objectives we have may differ depending on our values. One objective would be to raise as many people's incomes as much as possible. We also care about people's lives, protecting their lives in a pandemic, extending them and letting them live longer and healthier lives. We might care about climate change. We might care about poverty. We might care about inequality. Um, There's many objectives that could show up on that list. When thinking about how to make policy with those different objectives, I think there's a sort of classic mistake that's more common um, among liberals and a classic mistake that's more common um, among conservatives. And I'm going to caricature both of these mistakes. And of course, these don't apply to everyone or everything. They're just tendencies. The liberal mistake is to get the sign wrong. The Republican mistake, the conservative mistake, is to get the magnitude wrong. I'll explain what I mean by that. With a liberal, the temptation is to think that all good things go together, that there aren't any trade-offs at all. You see that in the idea that the best way to deal with climate change is to invest in green technologies that'll create more green jobs, increase economic growth, and slow carbon emissions. Or the best thing during a pandemic is to have um, restrictions on activity because that won't just save lives, it also, by saving lives, will um, help the economy. And that all of these good things um, go together. And that's what I mean by getting the sign wrong. Not that it's never the case that all good things go together. I can think of another example, a number of examples, where you can do things that both help the economy and help climate change. But an awful lot of what you'd want to do on climate change, you're doing not because you want more economic growth, but because you want Um, less emissions. They're not things you would have done in a world where carbon dioxide was a completely um, harmless gas. So that's what I mean by getting the sign wrong on the trade-off. What's the consequence of this? Well, if you applied this philosophy rigorously and analytically carefully, you'd end up doing too little. You shouldn't just combine your interventions to things that advance, let's say you have just two goals, to things that advance both of your goals simultaneously, everything that advances both goals you should do. If you, have, if you care about inequality and growth, anything that helps growth while reducing inequality, you should want to do it. But once you've done all of that, you then want to do some more things. You want to do some things where you give up a tiny bit of growth to get a big gain on your other goal, climate change, poverty, save lives, or vice versa, um, that you um, give up a little bit of lives, a little bit of climate change 
in order to make a huge stride forward um, for growth. So analytically, if you were rigorous about it, you'd end up doing too little. Uh, more common, though, the mistake is not to be rigorous about it and instead to fool yourself into thinking that whatever you're doing is going to accomplish all your goals um, simultaneously. Now, if it's well-intentioned and you're setting up a wonderful program for children, a wonderful program for climate change, a wonderful program to save lives in the pandemic, you know, what's the harm of kidding yourself and rather than talking about some side effects and unintended consequences, just saying um, that all good things go together? Um, I think there are some downsides to it. One is the world really does impose some constraints on you. If you try to, for example, do a massive fiscal stimulus in an economy that's very close to its capacity, you're just not going to be able to have no trade-off between unemployment and inflation. In fact, you might end up at the wrong side of that trade-off with a lot of inflation and no real ability to budge or push the unemployment rate um, any lower. You might end up with a bunch of regulations to deal with climate change that themselves have a set of distributional costs that in addition to the benefits for climate change, you want to say it's going to be more expensive to buy this microwave, to buy this car. That might be worth it. That might not be worth it. But to pretend that's not the case, you can end up inadvertently harming people. And the third problem is you may not actually be able to get what you want done if you trick yourself into thinking it benefits everyone. If you think there's no costs or no downsides to your policy, um, you don't expect any opposition um, to it. I remember one issue we worked on in the White House, one of the people working on it assured me that this new regulation we were going to have for business, uh, that the businesses were going to actually love it because it was going to increase predictability, make their lives easier, make their lives better, and their stock price all fell 5% on the day we announced it. Um, that doesn't make the policy bad, by the way. Our goal was not to maximize the stock price of these companies. It was to maximize social welfare. But as an input into that social welfare analysis, part of it uh, was how it affected those companies. And I trust their shareholders ex post evaluation of regulation more than the well-intentioned staffer who assured me um, that they would all love and um, appreciate it. So you can end up with policies that have losers the losers aren't fooled by your happy talk. They understand they're losers. The problem isn't that they don't understand economics. It's that they do. Um, they don't like it. And if you don't understand that and figure out compensation, you can't build um, a political coalition. The conservative error can be one of not the, getting the sign wrong on the trade-off, but getting the magnitude wrong. Thinking that whatever it is, the effects on economic growth are going to be so large that you don't need to think about um, anything else. If you look at the recent tax cuts in um, the United Kingdom that were originally proposed, I think the people proposing it, insofar as they had any analysis at all, thought it would increase economic growth so much that those tax cuts would pay for themselves. Whatever staffer assured the prime minister that that was the case um, had to deal with the fact that after they were announced, financial markets disagreed um, and did not think that those tax cuts were going to pay for themselves. Interest rates um, skyrocketed. The Tax Cut and Jobs Act, Robert Barrow and I, um, he coming from more of the conservative side, me coming from more of the liberal side, um, did a paper on it together in terms of the economic impact. 
Originally, we thought we might say, you know, come up to, with two different conclusions and crosswalk between our conclusions and explain why we had a different view. We ended up having the same view, so we didn't need to do that. That view was that they would add 0.2 to 0.4 percentage points to the level of output after a decade. That might be good enough to support the legislation, and for Robert, it was. Um, in my case, that was a relatively small gain in growth, and some of the distributional and other harms, um, from my perspective, um, outweighed that, and so my judgment was against that legislation. Um, but you could only make that judgment if you thought it was gonna add you know, 80% to growth, then you're gonna wanna do it. If you think any time you raise tax cuts on a high-income household, any time you do anything for climate change, it's gonna just wreck the economy and destroy it, well, then you can't really get into a cost-benefit conversation when the costs are infinite. And that is um, what I think, in some sense, is the conservative vice. So what's the solution to both of these? Here I'm gonna uh, talk my book and argue it's more economics education, um, whether that's in my class, reading the many things uh, that many of the people in this room um, read, and thinking in a disciplined way about issues like budget constraints, like trade-offs, like cost-benefit, um, and the like. What I'm concerned about is that there just seems to be less and less interest in that in the world today than there has been um, in the past. Well, it's always a little bit concerning when you think the past was some golden age paradise, and when you were more a part of that past than you are of the present, you probably need to check that temptation um, even more. But my perception is when you look at something like student loans in the United States, that not a lot of economic analysis went into the consequences of that. And insofar as it did, it focused on one half of the equation, the direct effects of the policy, who would benefit, without looking at the other half, on the indirect unintended consequences for uh, tuition, future indebtedness, who would ultimately foot the bill, inflation, um, interest rates, um, and the like. The UK, with what they did with their recent mini-budget, would be another example of where economists don't seem to have really been in the room doing the analysis, because I don't think it's that they have bad economists at the Office of Budget Responsibility in the UK. It was just they didn't want to bring them in and um, listen to them. Now, I think we have to try to understand why um, economists are listened to um, less than they should. And I'm on the record of saying, I'm glad President Obama didn't listen to everything I had to say, because if he did, um, he wouldn't have had a second term. And <laughs> if he had managed to limp along that far, it would have been a sort of disastrous one. So I think you do need to have some balance of what you can pass Congress, what people can live with, what's implementable, a whole set of considerations um, economists don't have. But the economic portion of it is in you know, considerably shorter supply, or actually I think the problem is in shorter demand than almost any of those other considerations are. On the progressive side, um, some of this has gone under a rather explicit set of interrelated movements, um, some of whom support modern monetary theory, some of whom support a neo-Brandeisian approach um, to antitrust, all of whom hate neoliberalism. I, at first, didn't really know what neoliberalism was. And then eventually I realized just whatever I think, 
is neoliberalism. <laughs> That's the definition of it. And you know, probably the same goes um, for some people um, in this room. And I've tried to think, a friend of mine asked me, you know, what do the sort of anti-neoliberals, post-neoliberalisms sort of want to substitute in its place? They don't like cost-benefit analysis. They don't like putting a value of life. They don't like doing an antitrust analysis of the effect on consumer welfare. They don't like calculating the budget constraint. What's the sort of alternative? The charitable explanation I got from someone more sympathetic to these ideas than I am is that you know, this post-neoliberalism, anti-neoliberalism is sort of dedicated to the proposition of inclusive growth. We should do as many things we can to increase growth and reduce inequality um, at the same time. Maybe universal preschool would be an example of that. Maybe that would increase growth and reduce inequality. That's the definition I'm all in. In fact, I think in some sense, everyone's all in. Who would be against something that only had good effects and didn't have any bad effects? So I think there's some other definitions sort of that, that acquire some more bite. Um, one of them is a belief that economics has overstated the importance of scarcity. In fact, that's the definition we use in our first class, um, scarce, uh, scarce resources uh, to achieve your means, a scarce means to achieve your your, your ends, and you know, has overstated that, has overstated budget constraints, has overstated um, all of that, and then we need to break free of the shackles of it. Um, I do think there have been times when um, those constraints have been overstated. I think when you're dealing with the financial crisis, the budget constraint around fiscal stimulus was smaller than many people thought it was. Fiscal stimulus was going to expand the size of the economy, partly pay itself back, and cost much less than you'd think it actually would. So I think there have been times and places where that's been the case, but you really need the analysis to understand what those times and places are. And if you're emerging from a natural disaster like COVID, much of which is going to solve itself through vaccination, all of which can't solve itself infinitely fast because supply chains have their constraints, the economics of doing fiscal stimulus in that environment is quite different than the economics of doing fiscal stimulus in a world of a 10% unemployment rate in the wake of a financial crisis where households are overly indebted as opposed to have um, very healthy balance sheets. There's a third definition that I think a lot of post-neoliberals coalesce around, um, and that's a really deep skepticism of markets. They don't like the way you know, I teach economics, which is I start, as I did in class on Monday this week, with perfect competition. And then I say, here's a bunch of assumptions that go into perfect competition. No externalities, competition, information, et cetera. And then the rest of the course go through those different assumptions, talk about lots and lots of ways markets fail, but in general, in thinking about those market failures, you're sort of starting with, here's how the market works. Oh, here's something that makes it go wrong. And then in terms of policy, here's how we fix that. So if it's an externality, it's a Pigouvian tax. If it's competition, it's antitrust um, and the like. And there's just much more enthusiasm for much more direct regulatory approaches whether that's price controls or anti-price gouging to control inflation, whether that's a pretty regulatory command and control approach to climate change under the misleading argument that it's too late 
um, to use market mechanisms um, using that approach on a wide scale um, to wages um, and the like. Um, that third definition of anti-neoliberalism or post-neoliberalism is probably the aspect of it um, that I like um, least. No, I'm not a libertarian. I'm not a libertarian, uh, I think, because even though Jeff tried to convince me that there's such a thing as consequential libertarianism that had no philosophical difference um, from everyone else, I think I probably do have a somewhat different social welfare function, a little bit less of an emphasis on individual liberty, a little bit more that if we could raise the top tax rate to 90% and there were no distortions at all from it, probably wouldn't mind doing that because other people could use the money better than and would make them happier than the people that were losing the money. And the only constraint on doing that is insofar as you're ending up hurting the economy and hurting the people at the middle and the bottom, um, not that the person at the top had some right to a property right that I think itself was derived in some sort of uncertain and contingent way. Not here to debate this question, just describing that I'm coming from a more um, utilitarian perspective and less of at least a philosophical um, libertarian one. Um, but I read libertarians a lot. Um, I read libertarians avidly, because almost everything that I would like to accomplish, whether it relates to poverty reduction, to climate change, or big topics like that, or small topics, like bringing down um, the price of hearing aids or bringing down the price of um, insulin, like libertarians have an awful lot um, to offer. A lot of that is because of two sort of basic ideas. One is that people and businesses are sort of going to do what they're going to do. Your solution to inflation can't be that you think businesses are evil greedy, sorry, this talk's going to end up being about inflation. Uh, the corporations are just evil, greedy. They just do whatever they want. And by the way, don't worry about all the wage increases they're giving because they're just going to sort of eat that in the form of lower profits. And none of that will the greedy corporations pass on in higher profits. Corporations aren't going to do what you want them to do and what you'd like them to do. They're going to sort of do what they're going to do. Uh, people are going to do what they're going to do. I don't think it's 100% self-interest in a narrow Gordon Gecko greed type of way, but it's an awful lot closer to that than thinking everyone's going to go out and act to try to create the type of world you want. And when you're designing public policy, you have to take that as given. Um, the second thing, and, and on this topic, I actually probably have more expertise than almost anyone um, that works at Cato, not to rub it in or anything. Um, I think the government has often really, really limited capacity to understand problems and craft really elaborate, creative um, solutions to them. Um, I don't think any of you were particularly surprised by that. You've all been writing about it for a long time, um, but you've lived it a lot less um, than I have. And you know, sometimes I'd be in a room where there was literally like a mathematical identity that people were arguing with. Um, there would be something like um, in health insurance, we agreed on, uh, you know, the Affordable Care Act would have a certain coverage ratio that at least, you know, no more than 30% of your costs could be out of pocket. And then people would say, okay, now that we have that, you know, let's have a lower deductible. And I'd say, well, if you have a lower deductible, you know, you get higher coinsurance. And they'd be like, oh, no, no, let's have lower coinsurance. And I'd say, 
No, you know, once you set that other variable, these other two are just a function of it. So you can pick two of the variables. You can't pick all three of them independently um, when they have to add up. Those were the sort of less, on that particular topic, the less, um, you know, erudite ones. Um, on that particular one, when we were trying to decide this question of, you know, what should the deductibles be, what should the rules on deductibles be, um, I sat down with a friend of mine who's a colleague now, and we thought long and hard about it for like an hour straight and couldn't decide what we thought was in people's um, best interest. We just weren't sure, and we were pretty educated and pretty good at it. To me, that said, you know what, we probably just shouldn't put that in a regulation, put that in a law, make it last forever. Maybe people have different tastes, different interests. They might know things um, that we don't know, and I think we were on the better end of the spectrum because at least we understood you know, how to do arithmetic with three numbers. So those two insights, the people and businesses are gonna sort of do what they're gonna do, and that the government, I think, does have a limited ability, um, lead me to a worldview that if I could pick the way we did public policy, um, it would place markets front and center, it would use them as much as possible to solve almost everything you could, but um, would recognize, first of all, they can't do all of that, um, on their own, I'll talk about what that means in a moment. Second, they're not gonna solve every one of those different goals I began with all on their own, because not one, every one of those goals is demanded by consumers. And they're not gonna result in the income distribution I want. And so you're gonna need um, a lot, potentially a lot of redistribution at the end of that. So this is sort of a roughly a second fundamental welfare theorem economics view of the world of change the endowments, and then let the markets work. So letting the markets work, um, in part that means not having anti-price gouging rules and not having rules on who can sell insulin and not having rules on you know, who can sell hearing aids, not having the Jones Act, not having, I thought that'd be an applause line, uh, <laughs> not, having, uh, not, not having tariffs, not having quotas, you know, all these different things where you're sort of micro trying to handle um, one part of um, the market. So a lot of it means getting rid of a lot of that regulation. Um, in fact, I think a competition agenda, which I've been very much in favor of and beating the drum for and for some time, a non-trivial portion of a pro-competition agenda is getting in the way of what's diminishing competition, which in many sectors isn't the big evil monopolists, it's the government, either well-intentioned or poorly intentioned um, through the types of things I just said, or restrictions on occupational licensing, restrictions on land use, um, and the like. So to make markets function, you have to um, you have to sort of get rid of all those things. You can have more competition so, um, so they can do things they're supposed to do. But they need a lot of inputs. Um, one input they need is uh, people. Um, the more immigration, um, the better. Uh, I thought at least Brian Kaplan would applaud that one. Um, uh, they need education. They need basic research. All of that, I think, is an important set of inputs into making those markets function. And then the markets may not have exactly um, the set of goals. Markets on their own don't take into account that my carbon emissions affect someone else, affect people um, in the future. And so harnessing the genius of 
you know, hundreds of millions of people as they make their choices, of millions of businesses as they figure out how to innovate and in what they do by sending them the right signal through something like a carbon tax instead of a decent amount of the regulations we have now and with the money returned to households in the form of a dividend would be um, the best way to tackle a problem like that. As I said, I don't think this system, I don't have any reason to think this system would result in a distribution of income that I'd be happy with, with a level of poverty that I'd be happy with, with something that I think would maximize a utilitarian um, social welfare function. So the other part of this would be the redistribution to ensure that um, the people sort of join in and benefit from this. Um, but there too, it's not like you have to take out, take off all that economic analysis, the cost benefits, the trade-offs I was talking about before. Ideally, you'd design it um, as well as possible. So I've written on the corporate tax side, raising the top tax, raising the corporate tax rate, and having expensing and disallowing interest deductions. I think on the individual side, for any given level of capital taxation, I'd rather do it in a less distortionary manner, which actually means either taxing capital gains at death, or if you can figure out administratively how to do it mark to market, um, you get ca less capital lock-in, and then one can debate you know, what the right level of capital taxation um, is. Another um, one is more broad-based um, taxation, and the very first one um, that I'd start with and be most enthusiastic about, which has left the political debate um, entirely, and there's a bipartisan consensus that it's a horrible idea, would be to address the health exclusion, which is a way to raise money in a way that I think would increase some consciousness of costs in healthcare, lead to better insurance plans, and result in people having more money and a little bit less health, such that health coverage, such that at the margin, um, that trade-off, that constraint they were having was being handled in um, a better way. The other um, end of the spectrum is what are you doing um, with the money? Frankly, wouldn't mind a European-style social welfare state where if you had broad-based taxation, you could support uh, broad-based benefits as well, but I don't think that's necessary. And in the United States, I don't think we can have broad-based taxation. And so any aspiration for policy to be essential, for benefits to be universal, either means it's gonna be quite small or it's just not gonna add up and leave us with bigger problems um, in the future. So I think you unfortunately or fortunately um, need to target. The more you can do cash rather than in kind, I think that's generally better. Um, the value of a dollar to someone is a dollar. Um, the value of anything else in kind, maybe you're lucky and you figure out the exact right, wonderful, amazing policy, but I think more likely you'll end up messing it up and the benefits of your uh, whatever you did get captured by um, you know, whatever it is. So child, you know, I was more enthusiastic about the child tax credit, which I think has a hard time going wrong than I was about the child care proposal, which could potentially have all sorts of the unintended consequences I was talking about um, before. Wouldn't personally go all the way to a universal basic income, because I think some targeting does make sense, giving more money to people uh, to provide insurance when they're unemployed than when they're not more money to someone who's disabled and unable to work than someone who's not, more money to people with larger families 
than um, the opposite too. This, uh, not saying, uh, this isn't a complete list of you know, my views on policy, a complete list of what we should do on policy. I certainly don't expect anyone to have changed their value orientation uh, based on anything I said. But there's an awful lot of the policies I just said that even if you are coming from a different value orientation, as long as you're still sort of agree on like arithmetic and that if you have three numbers with a mathematical relationship, you can't pick all three of them um, independently, I think you can make an awful lot of progress. A number of these debates can be unbundled. How to tax cap capital can be unbundled from the question of how much to tax capital. You know, how much redistribution to, can, to do can be unbundled from the question of what is the best way um, to do that redistribution and figuring out where there are genuine shared goals of which of all the ones I said, I think growth is the least controversial and the one most people are in favor of is probably another one or a case we're doing this type of careful case by case, thinking about trade-offs, thinking about unintended consequences, doing the cost benefit, I think could make a real difference just have to figure out how to both continuing to increase um, the supply of it. Um, but right now, um, it does seem to be an excess supply. Most white papers um, are sold for a price of zero. Um, and so it's also figuring out how to address the demand side. And I'm sure the next panel will know exactly how to do that. Thank you. Economist Jason Furman was the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Obama administration. He spoke at the Cato Institute's New Challenges to the Free Economy conference held last week. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.